You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. When I was younger, I attended a youth conference that was called Reverse the Curse, and the underlying theme of the conference was that you do not have to be all of the things that happened to you, and you don't have to become the people who raised you. One of the things that we see a lot when studying true crime is that often people are unable to reverse that curse, and they're either doomed to repeat evil actions, or they eventually act out against their abusers in ways that are shocking, and sometimes, much as we true crime fanatics hate to admit it, they act out against their abusers in ways that some of us are willing to lend a pass to. This week, we're going to look at a very rare case, a case where a daughter struck back against her mother, who had seemingly turned her into a victim of Munchausen by proxy. The daughter grew up believing, and having everyone else around her believing, that she was an incredibly sick young woman whose mom was a saint for taking care of her. The truth, however, appears to have been very much the opposite. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to the 100th episode of Gone But Never Forgotten, More Freedom in Prison Than Her Mom Ever Allowed, The Murder of Dee Dee Blanchard. Dee Blanchard was born Claudine, with two Ds, Petrie, in Shack Bay, Louisiana, in 1967. She grew up with her family in Golden Meadow, Louisiana, and she was one of five children to her parents Claude Anthony Petrie Sr. and Emma Lois Gisclair. In the 2017 documentary on HBO, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, which looked into this story, her family spoke out, and it would be fair to say that in her family of seven, she was certainly viewed as the black sheep of the family. From a very young age, Dee Dee would lie about anything and everything. She would steal from her family members as a way of getting back at them when things didn't go the way that she wanted. She also ran afoul of the law a few times for fraud, writing bad checks and credit card fraud. When Dee Dee was 24 years old, she became pregnant by a young man named Rod Blanchard, who was 17 years old at the time. The two would choose the name Gypsy Rose because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy, 
and Rod loved the band Guns and Roses. Not too long before Gypsy Rose was born in July of 1991, the couple would separate as Rod said that he didn't want to be tied down for all the wrong reasons. Dee Dee tried to get Rod to return and be a family, but when Rod resisted, Dee Dee moved in with her parents to help with Gypsy Rose. From the time of Gypsy Rose's birth, Dee Dee became obsessed with the fact that seemingly Gypsy Rose had every illness that was known to mankind. Dee Dee had limited medical knowledge because she had worked as a nurse's aide. The first instance of this was when Gypsy Rose was only three months old. Dee Dee claimed that Gypsy had sleep apnea, and Dee Dee started to take Gypsy to the hospital for overnight stays so that she could be watched over while on a sleep monitor. None of the tests that Gypsy Rose was put through showed any sign, though, of sleep apnea. Over the years, Dee Dee would decide that Gypsy was suffering from a myriad of diseases, all ultimately attributed to what she said was an unspecified chromosomal disorder. When Gypsy was eight years old, Dee Dee described to people that Gypsy was suffering from leukemia and muscular dystrophy, which she told people that Gypsy needed to use a wheelchair because of, and that she also needed a feeding tube. Over the years, so many diseases and ailments would be used to describe Gypsy, including seizures, asthma, and hearing and visual impairments. It was around that time as well that Didi pulled Gypsy out of school to be homeschooled. The reasoning that was given was obviously that Gypsy needed special attention and could be better taught at home, but in hindsight it does look like it was done to further seclude Gypsy from people and questions when Didi could not be around. But of course we will get more into that as we dive into the story. Also, during this time, in 1997, while Dee Dee and Gypsy were living with Dee Dee's family, the family would become incredibly suspicious of Dee Dee for something really sinister. The family started to believe that Dee Dee was purposely trying to poison her stepmother, Laura, because she was preparing food for her around the time that Laura started to get really sick. It was discovered that the food was being laced with the weed-killing chemical Roundup and then put into Laura's food with the intent, the family believed, to kill Laura. The family believed that this was in retaliation to the fact that her family had been confronting her regarding her treatment of Gypsy. All of these events pertaining to her family either made Dee Dee so angry or so afraid that she took Gypsy and she moved to New Orleans' suburb of Seidel. Ironically, once Didi left, her stepmother recovered from her illness. In Slidell, Gypsy Rose and Didi lived in public housing, and their only source of income was child support payments that Rod was still sending to Didi and social assistance. Didi had managed to be resourceful and had started to receive payments for the medical conditions that Gypsy supposedly had. 
Gypsy and Dee spent most of their life during this period going to one hospital or specialist or another to seek treatments for the illnesses that Dee Dee explained that Gypsy had. Medications and treatments were given to Dee Dee for Gypsy for many different ailments, including hearing and vision issues, seizures, and more. And Gypsy even had several surgeries performed on her at Dee Dee's behest, including a surgery that was done to remove Gypsy's saliva glands to control a drooling problem that Dee Dee said Gypsy had. Gypsy would later say that her mother had induced those drooling problems by using a topical anesthetic to numb her gums before visits with doctors. Gypsy Rose was clearly being tortured at her mother's behest. When Hurricane Katrina destroyed the area that they were living in in August of 2005, Dee and Gypsy would go to shelter with individuals who had special needs, and Dee Dee really took advantage of the situation. She said that all of Gypsy's medical documentation, including her birth certificate, had been destroyed in the flood. Dee Dee then made the decision to relocate the two of them to Missouri. The two would first live in a home that they rented in Aurora, Missouri, and Gypsy would be honored by the Ole Foundation, which is a foundation that speaks up for and fights for the rights of feeding tube recipients. Gypsy Rose, who in point of fact did not need a feeding tube, was named the Ole Foundation Child of the Year in 2007. Then, in 2008, Didi would manage to get a small home built for them through Habitat for Humanity in Springfield, Missouri. The human interest story of a mother and her disabled daughter who had relocated after Katrina and found a new life was getting a lot of publicity and a lot of things were donated, given, and gifted to Didi and Gypsy Rose. They were given free flights to see specialists that were across the country. They were given free trips to Walt Disney World and tickets backstage to meet Miranda Lambert on multiple occasions. People loved the story and wanted to support Dee Dee in any way that they could. Rod, for his part, was still present in some form or fashion in Gypsy's life at this point, aside from just providing the child support payments every month. He also spoke to Gypsy from time to time, including one time that he would later recall when he spoke to Gypsy on her 18th birthday. Dee Dee told Rod, before he spoke to Gypsy, that she did not know her real age and not to mention that she was turning 18. Dee Dee said that Gypsy thought that she was 14. Rod and his second wife would try multiple times to come out to visit and see Dee Dee and Gypsy but Dee Dee always managed to come up with reasons at the last minute that the visit couldn't happen, usually pertaining to Gypsy's health. Meanwhile, Dee Dee told everyone that Gypsy's father was not in the picture at all, and he was an abusive drug addict and alcoholic. She said that he left when he couldn't reconcile with all of Gypsy's health problems, and that he had never helped them out with any child support at all. You really see how crooked this lady was when you look at the timetable that people saw and the reality at the same time. You can see how everything that Didi did was very calculated. 
She knew how to take advantage of the hurricane and start fresh with no medical documents. She knew how to get her and her daughter all of the attention that she wanted while simply looking like a mom trying to do everything she could for her daughter to give her daughter the best life possible. It really is sickening. Everyone that met Gypsy fell in love with her. They saw a girl who was missing most of her teeth and who looked and seemingly lived every one of the illnesses that her mom said that she had. Gypsy had even started wearing wigs at this point because Didi said that Gypsy was a leukemia patient. Didi had told Gypsy that the medications that she was on would make her hair fall out, so proactively they decided to shave her head and they bought wigs for her so that she didn't have to suffer through all of that. As I'm sure can be assumed, Gypsy did not have leukemia. But the saddest thing for me in this whole story, I think, is that she didn't know that she didn't have leukemia until much later in her life. Everywhere that Dee Dee and Gypsy went, they were accompanied by a feeding tube and an oxygen tank, should Gypsy, quote, need either. Gypsy was told as a part of her abuse that she was not to ever speak of or let on that she was not suffering from any of the illnesses that her mother said she had. Didi would even always be holding Gypsy's hand, and if she thought that Gypsy was talking too much and she wanted Gypsy to stop talking, she would squeeze her hand. Gypsy was always seemingly a dog on a leash, and yet... Everyone could only see the doting mother and her struggling daughter. Didi had managed to take advantage of a healthcare system that can largely only go off of the words of the patient at times by using her limited knowledge from nurses' aid work, but she had done so and effectively built herself up as this immaculate and selfless caregiver who seemed to only exist for her daughter. Along the way, it would seem that Didi effectively convinced most doctors of the things that she claimed that Gypsy was going through. One doctor, Bernando Flasterstein, became incredibly suspicious of Didi in his time working as Gypsy's pediatric neurologist. He became particularly suspicious of the muscular dystrophy diagnosis when MRIs and blood tests showed no anomalies at all. He remembered that Didi had a lot of inconsistencies in her stories about Gypsy. Flasterstein said that he believed that Gypsy was in fact a victim of Munchausen by proxy. I have seen different documentaries paint Flasterstein with a brush like he was a hero in this story because he knew the answer when seemingly everyone else didn't. But the reality is that he is not a hero. He may have known that there were issues here, but he did not report any of them to social services because he says that he believed that nobody would ever believe him. Didi would manage to get permission to look at the doctor's notes on Gypsy, and that is when she stopped taking Gypsy to see him because she saw that he was getting suspicious. As Gypsy got older, she managed to get a little more freedom from Dee Dee, which she took advantage of when she could to get away from her completely. 
One of the things that she loved to do was attend sci-fi and fantasy conventions. She liked it because she was able to get into a costume and just blend in with people as though she was just one of them and not everything that her mom presented her as every single day of her life. Gypsy says that in 2011, she had made an attempt to try to run away from her mom and her life. She had met a man online. Didi, though, would ultimately find Gypsy at a hotel with the man, and she showed the man the fake birth certificate that she had for Gypsy that, showed that said that she was underage. Didi threatened to ruin the man for kidnapping and for pedophilia, and he left Gypsy behind with her mom. Gypsy says that Didi then smashed her computer with a hammer and said that she would use the hammer on Gypsy and her fingers the next time that she tried to escape. Gypsy was not a stranger to physical abuse, as she said that her mom would often beat her, but after the escape attempt, she says that her mom kept her leashed and handcuffed to her bed so that she couldn't move, let alone leave. Diddy also told Gypsy that she had filed paperwork with the police so that they would know that Gypsy was mentally incompetent, just in case she was ever found without Diddy. Gypsy would later attribute those fears to one of the major reasons that she never tried to go to the police. She said that she believed that they would simply dismiss her and return her to Diddy. Gypsy would use the internet still on her mom's computer when her mom went to bed, and in 2012 she met a man on a Christian dating site named Nicholas Godijan from Wisconsin. In 2014, Gypsy said that she had presented two options to Nicholas, mostly in jest. One was that they get pregnant, and then Dee Dee would have to accept Nicholas, and the other was that Nicholas kill Dee Dee. Gypsy would say that Nicholas never really responded much to the idea about having a baby. In late 2014 or early 2015, Nicholas would come to visit Gypsy for the first time, fully funded by Gypsy. The plan was for Nicholas to pretend to accidentally run into them at the movie theater and for them to pretend that they started their relationship from there, neglecting the fact that they had been talking for nearly three years at this point. That plan essentially happened, but after that first meeting in person, the two started to plan the murder of Dee Dee together. Gypsy told Nicholas the truth about all of the lies, and she asked him to kill Dee Dee so that they could be together. In June of 2015, Nicholas would return to Springfield while Gypsy and Dee Dee were at a doctor's appointment, and then he waited until Gypsy said that they were home and that Dee Dee was asleep. When he got to the house, he was led into the home by Gypsy, and she allegedly gave him duct tape, gloves, and a knife. The understanding was clearly that Nicholas was going to kill Dee Dee, and Gypsy was not going to have any part of it. Gypsy went into the bathroom, and she says that she covered her ears so that she wouldn't hear her mother's screams. Inside of Didi's room, Nicholas stabbed her 17 times in the back and left her for dead. Gypsy and Nicholas would then have sex in Gypsy's room, steal $4,000 in cash, and fled to a motel that was outside of Springfield, 
where they planned to hide out and figure out what their next steps were going to be. They mailed the murder weapon, the knife, to Nicholas's house in Wisconsin so that they wouldn't be found with it if anyone came looking. What set everything off next was that friends saw two strange posts on the Facebook account that Gypsy shared with Dee Dee. Gypsy posted, quote, That bitch is dead, unquote. And that alerted friends that something weird was going on. Gypsy said later that she made the post so that someone would find Dee Dee's body. Well, that discovery certainly came. When friends tried to call Dee Dee and they didn't get an answer, they went to the house. At the house, they saw that the vehicle was still in the driveway, and since it was a modified vehicle for Gypsy's wheelchair, it was unlikely that the pair had then gone anywhere. When nobody answered the door, the friends made the decision to call the police for a welfare and sight check. The police had to wait for a search warrant to be issued, and when they did, that is when they found Didi's body. Immediately, fear spread throughout the community. Not only had Didi been murdered, but Gypsy Rose was nowhere to be found. Everyone began to fear that Gypsy Rose had been killed as well, or that perhaps she had been kidnapped. The fear then turned to the fact that even if Gypsy was unharmed, she was somehow taken somewhere without her medications, without her feeding tubes, without her oxygen, and without her wheelchairs. A friend of Gypsy, Aaliyah Woodmancy, came forward to police with printouts that she had kept when Gypsy had told her and showed her about her secret online boyfriend. Police had already started to look into where the posts on Facebook had come from, and they discovered that it was Wisconsin when they ran the IP address, and that, of course, is where Nicholas was from. The public would sh be shocked, however, when the truth came out. The next day, the police would raid Nicholas's family home, and many believed that the good news was going to be coming their way, that Gypsy was found, and that she was alive. Instead, what happened is that Gypsy Rose and Nicholas surrendered to police, and were taken into custody on charges of murder and felony-armed criminal action. Police would tell the public to hold off on donating to various fundraisers and GoFundMes that had gone up to help the family in the wake of Dee Dee's murder. The police said only that not everything was as it seemed in this case. And boy was that an understatement. We went from a possible double homicide or homicide and kidnapping to the stark reality that Gypsy Rose may have had something to do with the death of her mother after all. And then the truth would all really start to come out, and people learned that Gypsy Rose was not sick, nor had she ever been sick. It also came out that Gypsy was always able to walk, and that her mom forced her to act as though she could not. Obviously, that emotional roller coaster was felt by everyone involved and watching on, and the sentiment seemed to change rather quickly from horror and anger at the murder of Dee Dee to sympathy for Gypsy, for the way that she had lived her entire life. It was evident that all that Gypsy had known at the hands of her mother was child abuse. 
Even the county prosecutor, Dan Patterson, would announce that even though the charge was first-degree murder, he would not be seeking the death penalty in the cases against Gypsy or against Nicholas. He said that the circumstances surrounding the case were certainly unusual, and he wanted to weigh that into his case. That meant that both would face life in prison without parole if found guilty. Gypsy's attorney was able to get Gypsy's old medical records that showed the extensive testing, surgeries, and lies that Didi had forced her daughter into, and managed to get a plea bargain to second-degree murder for Gypsy. In July of 2015, Gypsy accepted the plea deal and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. As a testament to how horrible Gypsy's life was, in her first year in prison, she gained 14 pounds. If you're wondering, most inmates obviously lose weight when they go to prison. Gypsy would even later say that prison as a whole was a major step up from her previous life with Didi because she was treated like a woman and a human being. Nicholas faced the more severe first-degree murder charges because he was the person who had committed the murder and prosecutors believed that he had hatched the actual plan on how to execute the murder. In January of 2017, his trial was postponed as his team wanted another psychiatric exam. Nicholas has an IQ of only 82 and is on the autism spectrum. His defense contended that that shows that he had a diminished capacity to understand what he did and what he was doing. His trial would commence in November of 2018, and Nicholas was painted by the prosecution as a man who thought for over a year about what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. The defense team painted him as a man who was in love and would do anything for Gypsy. The trial lasted for four days, and the jury would be given four choices. They could find Nicholas guilty of involuntary manslaughter, guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of first-degree murder, or not guilty of all charges. After two hours of deliberation, they found Nicholas guilty of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. In February of 2019, he was sentenced to 25 years for the armed criminal action charge to be served concurrently with his life sentence for first-degree murder. I've talked in the past about how bad things can turn out when people are too kind, and yes, I do think that that is a thing. Imagine being one of these people out at a vigil and donating money and crying over the loss of a woman that you thought was something of a saint, only to find out that she was in fact a child abuser, a liar, and just a downright horrifying human being. That would be an awful feeling. Didi's family was not sad to see her go, as they knew that she was not a good person, even if they didn't know the extent that her evilness went to. About the trial, the family would say that Gypsy had already suffered enough for her crimes before she committed them. None of the family was willing to pay for Didi to have a funeral, and ultimately Didi's ashes would be flushed down the toilet. Gypsy is now serving her time at the Chillicothe Correctional Center in Missouri. 
As mentioned, she stated unequivocally that her life now in prison is better than the life that she had with Didi. After studying Munchausen by proxy herself, she believes that her mom certainly had every symptom. She said that sadly her mom likely would have been the perfect mother for someone who was actually sick and who actually needed a caregiver. But instead, her mom had forced her to live that life so that she could live out the life that she wanted. On June 27th of 2022, Gypsy got married to a man named Ryan Scott Anderson. And it was announced just this week as I worked on this episode that Gypsy Rose Blanchard has been granted early parole and she will be released on December 28th of 2023. So, as I always do, I just want to know how that all makes you feel. Are you going to leave this episode with trust issues, or did you arrive here with those already intact? Do you feel concerned that a killer will be back on the streets sooner than expected? Do you believe that a full sentence should have been served here? Maybe you believe that she never should have been found guilty in the first place. Tell me how you feel over on Patreon or over on the social media pages. I love a good chat, and I actually don't even entirely know how I feel about this one. We all know I'm generally a firm believer that a crime is a crime, but this one certainly hit me different. If all of the facts are facts, perhaps murder saved a life in this case. What say you? I cannot believe that this is the 100th episode of the podcast here today. I want to thank each and every one of you out there that spend time with me every week for doing so. This is a fun little passion project, and I'm so happy to sit down and study and share a case with you each and every week. If you enjoy what I do, please do whatever you can to help the show. Five-star ratings, follows, shares, comments... Patreon, all of those things help the show more than you could ever know. And, more than anything, the show is helped when you come back here for the next 100 episodes and tell your friends as well. I'll see you back here next week, and I wish nothing but the best for each and every one of you goners out there, and I hope that you continue to be better. See you next time.